You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, beautiful listeners. Welcome. I'm glad to have you here. If you are a first-time listener, your timing is impeccable. You have picked a great episode to initiate yourself. That sounds funny, initiate yourself, (laughs) as opposed to me, your not-so-humble host, putting you through some sort of hazing ritual. (laughs) We're not going to do that. My guest is a very successful licensed family therapist. He specializes in building great marriages. His name is David Feldman. He focuses on communication, expressing gratitude, and increasing trust and intimacy. He works with clients all around the world via phone and Zoom calls. You can follow him on Twitter at David Feldman, whereas my online moniker is Man Overseas. His is at, well, I believe his Twitter handle is at David Feldman, but his account title is Building Great Marriages. So when he tweets something, I see that Building Great Marriages has tweeted something, and it's usually an excellent tweet with insightful tips on how to be a better husband or wife or whatever he's thinking about at the time. He says a great marriage is made not by who you marry, but by who you are. You'll hear him throughout the episode use phrases like lean into his whatever or lean into her femininity. Give yourself space to do X. So as you might imagine, I challenge him in a few areas. (laughs) Those aren't phrases that I would ever use but I don't challenge him without warning. In fact, I start our conversation by letting him know that although he is the expert and I will defer to the expert, I have been known to challenge experts and conventional thinking. It's sort of my way. I was sure we would find areas where we agree, but also find areas where we strongly disagree. And that's a good thing. We talk about scheduling sex. We talk about intergender dynamics facing rejection within the context of a relationship, traditionally masculine characteristics exhibited now by women and traditionally feminine traits now displayed by men, mostly younger men, but not always, what the dating world is like nowadays, men not wanting to grow up, man as a variety-seeking creature, women's hypergamous nature, young people not engaging in courtship anymore, Marrying your high school sweetheart versus your college sweetheart. Doing what I did, which is maintain your bachelorhood deep into your 30s. That gave us a lot to talk about. We discuss women who wish to marry their best friend. The initial sizzle in relationships due to masculine feminine polarity and what you can do to maintain that electricity. We talk about Red Pill, the manosphere, Camille Paglia's views on intergender dynamics how important sex is in a relationship on a scale of one to 10 men taking care of themselves, men not taking care of themselves. The mystery of sex chapter of think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill. And all of that I just gave you probably covers the first half of this episode. (laughs) That'll give you an idea of how much we pack into this 90 minutes. David is easily one of the top three guests we've had on this show if not the best. He argues really well. He's a really smart guy. So let's get to it. Please welcome Mr. David Feldman. 
Welcome to the podcast, David. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, absolutely. It's great to be here. Now, I was thinking as a benefit to my audience, I thought it would be best to approach this episode as though my wife is not going to listen to this. <laughs> and if she does, we'll cross that bridge later. <laughs> but I say that because if I'm overly concerned with what she thinks of what I share here today, then our conversation, David, will, will not be, it will lack a certain candor, put it that way. Absolutely. And uh, that's the same way I, I treat my Twitter feed. I always, even though my <laughs> wife does follow me on Twitter, I pretend as if she doesn't. <laughs> Wise move. And, and it's listeners and readers who suffer, right? If we don't pretend that they're, they're not there sometimes. Yeah, that's so, right. We have to be authentic. I also suspect that you and I will find areas where we strongly agree, but also areas where we strongly disagree. And I think that's a good thing. I hope so as well. I hope so as well. I do recognize you as the expert, however. It's why I invited you here. So, Why, thank you. It's always yes, nice. To get there will that be title. deference. <laughs> but I've also been known to respectfully challenge experts where I think it's appropriate. So but I hope you don't mind. Not at all. It's all what with I the do. aim. What's that? I, that's all I do on Twitter all day long. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Twitter is. Yeah. But yeah, it's all in, in the aim of facilitating a better, more in depth discussion and a sharing yes. of ideas, which mm -hmm. is what Twitter should be. But Unfortunately, it's it's a place for people to argue primarily. Sometimes uh, it's interesting that you want to start with sex first because I just finished a whole Twitter thread, and they're probably still going on back and forth all about uh, you know emotional validation versus like emotional connection. Does that come first in relationships, or does the sexual intimacy come first? And of course, you know the lines were drawn between men and women on the thread, and it's just it's just wonderful to have people feel comfortable expressing um, their challenges, their thoughts, their dreams, their experiences, you know, and uh, it's really neat to see so many different opinions coming out online. And, and I'm kind of there, you know, in the background, kind of tossing something in here or there, but I, I really enjoy the, the banter. So it's, uh, we'll, we'll have what to talk about today for sure. Well, one of the things I admire about you is that you you throw your opinion out there with your face attached to it. <laughs> to me, it's cowardice to throw your opinion on Twitter without people knowing who you are. Yeah. I um, see a, a big benefit to it, but if you're going to express yourself or personal things, then how do we know if you're being truthful if you won't even attach your name or face to what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it definitely keeps me in check a lot because there's a lot I'd like to say, but I don't. <laughs> because it's directly connected to me and my personality, my business, my family, you know, my kids, you know, see it as well. So there's a limit to what I can say, which is fine, because uh, it's not always appropriate to say every single thing that you're thinking of. And when you say kids, you have six kids, correct? Yes, I do. Six, six kids, five boys and one girl. Amazing. <laughs> and you and I have had a very different upbringing. So I was raised in the Catholic Church. And as I understand it, you were more secular until 21 years old. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And at 21, I, I traveled to Israel and I kind of got in touch with my Jewish roots and chose to adopt a more Hasidic Orthodox lifestyle. Um, Interesting. Yeah, which is not really your typical tweeter, so to speak, uh, especially when you're talking about relationships and sex and marriage and things like that. Uh, it can get quite um immodest at times so 
it, it is a little different that I've chosen to show up on Twitter in this way, but I think people appreciate hearing a traditional yet somewhat radical perspective on things. So does that mean that you do not use Twitter on Friday nights until <laughs> Sunday? hundred percent. That's perfect. Yeah. And it's, wow. uh, yeah, definitely. I say goodbye on Friday evening around seven o'clock or whenever the sun sets. And uh, I say hello on Saturday night. So it's always exciting to see what happened in between that time. That is cool. I visited Jerusalem before and had the streets to myself on a Saturday. It's, it's, it's oh, interesting. It's very yeah. quiet. Very quiet. Yeah. Now, this is purely anecdotal, but those people who I know who strictly follow the teachings of the church, who are the most religious, seem to be the most miserable in their marriage. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. They're also the ones who have ceded the most ground in terms of leadership in the relationship. Uh -huh. So because they have abdicated the men anyway, though, and that's who I'm communicating with most, almost 100%, abdicated their role as what I would call the wise king archetype in the relationship. What's happened is that the woman has had to bring those qualities of leadership in lieu of, of him doing it because he's gotten lazy or complacent or or just didn't want to put forth the effort that it would take to maintain leadership. Leadership has a price, and part of it is it's exhausting. Yes. And people aren't going to like a lot of the decisions that you make. So what happens is the woman is forced to assume the role of leader in the relationship and in the family. And from there, it's a short slide into loss of respect, loss of desire for the man, I find that it's inevitable, and I've, I've just seen it play out over and over again, and I won't let it happen in my marriage, but I want to get your thoughts on that. And, and we can tie it into a discussion on sex also. Leadership is a tough one because um, it says, in the, at least in Jewish theology, that there's no king without a nation. So leadership really goes two ways. You can have a man who's a tremendous leader, but if the people don't aren't interested in following him, then he can still be a leader in many ways, but he doesn't have a following, so it's a dysfunctional leadership. So in order for leadership to work, you need both a giver and a receiver. And I feel like that whole dynamic has been distorted in our current society in general. And I would definitely say that that correlates directly to the masculine and feminine. So. I find it very common that you have a successful husband who provides, who protects, who supports, he's there emotionally available, he's, you know, he has a good, great relationship with his kids, but he may be married to somebody who, for whatever her reasons are, is not willing to accept, is not willing to receive. And so when she refuses to receive or she's incapable of receiving, and that could be for many reasons, including a deep sense of distrust, maybe from a father figure or from a broken home or for some other failed relationships that she's had, his leadership goes wasted. And, and, and I'm not discounting the idea that there, are, that there are men who have, a difficult, have difficulty with being a leader themselves. 
But I think it's a, a, a larger problem than what is oftentimes described online or in the manosphere where it's like, oh, men are beta or men just don't know what it means, the lack of testosterone, or men just don't know what it means to lead anymore, or there are no strong men anymore. I think that there's a dynamic. You know, if you're in relationship with a woman who wants you to lead, it's a totally different situation. A, it, a woman can bring out a, a man's sense of leadership. She can help create that leader if she wants to. And she can also help knock it down. And vice versa, a man can bring out a fem, the feminine, or he can also bring out a controlling shrew, if that's who he wants to bring out. So I think that there's a dynamic on both ends that needs to be respected in order for that relationship to really flourish and for a man to be able to stand in his own space and for a woman to be able to le- have somebody who she can lean on. I believe early in the relationship that dynamic is established. And if it's not, let's say, a man has abdicated his role as a leader for so long, it's very hard to use a, a, a word that's used often in what you call the manosphere. It's very hard to change the frame of the relationship later because it's, it's almost going to seem phony. Like, oh, now you want to be a, late, a leader after seven years of marriage or 23 years of marriage? <laughs> yeah, I totally hear that. Um, when I work with men on these types of issues, I always try to help them find areas in their life where they already are leaders. So sometimes these men are leaders in taking care of their bodies, or sometimes they're leaders when it comes to their job at work, or sometimes they're leaders in a community activity in their church or something like that. And once we can kind of move that man into realizing from a mental perspective and an emotional perspective that he does have the qualities to lead, that helps him leverage that sense of confidence and bring it back into the relationship. So my, the, the, the best way that I like to describe this to men is that we need to lead whether she recognizes that or receives it or not. Meaning my leadership is not dependent on whether she agrees with me, whether she leans into me, whether she wants to follow me. As a man, we're leaders. And that's a gift that we bring to everybody around us, including our wife. If our spouse wants to take advantage of our leadership, so much much the better for her. If she doesn't, then, you know, she can choose to... you know, recreate everything on her own. I hope that kind of made sense. I think it does. It makes me think of the fact that our society is so prosperous nowadays and so safe that we can afford to flip the role, so to speak, to where young girls nowadays, if they exhibit any sort of what we would consider traditionally masculine characteristics, are lauded for that behavior and young boys are encouraged to exhibit more feminine characteristics, traditionally speaking. And I just believe that more emphasis needs to be placed on the masculine and feminine. If, if shit were to hit the fan and you see this every disaster that occurs, whether it's a flood or a hurricane, 
the feminists aren't around taking the lead. It's right. all the men. So we need to remember this even in times of prosperity and safety. When you're dating, you can you can recognize this almost right away. Is she capable of submitting to a man's leadership or is it going to be a constant power struggle within the relationship? Yeah. And then you have to decide, is that something I want to deal with or not? And what I'm afraid is that much of this knowledge wasn't available. It's almost like it's all this knowledge is lagging because society has moved forward so quickly to where we now have men and women working in a box and competing against each other all day. And I would imagine that comes with all sorts of competitive fire and testosterone that women never had to really utilize in the past. And they're bringing it home and it's creating all these sorts of clashes. Are you familiar with Camille Paglia? Yes, of course. She talks about how women used to have their own hierarchies and men used to have their own hierarchies and men and women wouldn't spend that much time together. Well, nowadays women want, or they think that they want their best friend and they want 24, they want to be with their man 24 seven and won't let him out of their sight. And what happens is you start to become more like each other. And Mm -hmm. so the sizzle is gone that the masculine feminine polarity, which brought you together the initial attraction is gone and it's because you've tried to make them more like you and they've tried to make you more like them. And it's, it's terrible for intergender dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think the entire um, social structure with the, with men and women both feeling so compelled to go out and support the family and uh, contributes so much financially to the, to the family really, um, breaks down a lot of what goes on inside the home as well so it's just it's just the dynamic it's very hard to transition from men and women are competitors at work to um a traditional type relationship at home where a woman could kind of lean into her femininity and not feel like she's responsible for everything and not feel like she has to take control and not feel like if she doesn't stick up for herself she's not going to get her way or that or or this she can't trust anybody. It's really hard for her to, to separate those two realms. And I think for men the same way. Men are taught when they go into the workforce, when they go into the public sphere, um, that of course they need to obviously treat everybody equally and um, as, as partners. But then when they get home, it's kind of like, I can imagine that for many men, they may be saying to themselves, what now gives me the right to have input in this decision or even take control of this decision. I, didn't, I don't have that right when I leave the house. What changes when I'm in the house? And I do think that affects the, the sexual polarity and the dynamics between man and woman because, like I said, from a spiritual perspective even, men, the source of masculinity is an external source and the source of a woman's femininity is an internal source. And we're designed to fit you know, in that way. But when we live our lives on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis, in contradiction with that, there's not much left. When we when we when we approach intimacy, it's hard to retransition into that mode. So, on this topic of polarity, we haven't we've touched around sex, but we kind of beat around the bush. On a scale of one to ten, with ten being most important. How important is sex to a happy and fulfilling relationship? 
Oh, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, first of all, let's let's put aside the fact that there's always going to be couples for whom things are going to be very different. So uh, this is not to say that you can't have a very intimate and close relationship or a very yeah intimate, emotionally intimate, close relationship without sex. That could be. There's There's people who can't have it, you know, sex or things like that. And I'm not in any way trying to diminish their experience. But if we just want to talk about a standard average relationship, I mean, on a scale of one to 10, it's a 10. I mean, that, that is the reason why men and women come together is to share their physical intimacy and on a more biological level to procreate. And that's, that's the whole connection that we have with each other is based off of our sexual energy and our sexual experience. It's pretty important. What do you think? I like everything you just said. And it is certainly the initial attraction. If we gave it too much weight early on, I think we could make a bad choice in mate. I'm sure you've heard this before, but a wise man once told me to not marry the 10, (laughs) get an eight or a nine, because the 10 is going to be one crazy (laughs) just because of the way that she's been dealt with her entire life. Now I happen to luck out and get a 10. You did too, huh? (laughs) Okay. So yeah, you, you just don't want someone who is an emotional roller coaster between one and 10 emotionally. You would like someone who's on an even keel from six to nine. And more than likely that's going to correlate with a six to nine in attractiveness. So if you can get a nine, hold that tight because it's not worth it to, to reach a little higher. Yeah, so. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I'm not talking about, you know, the attraction level or anything like that. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm more referring to problems that couples are having, that all couples are having today, whether they're very handsome and beautiful or whether they're, you know, mediocre looking or middle-aged and overweight, just beyond that whole, you know, I look really good phase, um, which is you know, the, the problem of a dead bedroom or the problem of a lack of uh, attraction or just no desire for intimacy or, or, or major differences in what they think intimacy should look like, which almost always happens in most relationships. So I'm talking more about, like when I say it's a 10, I'm saying that your intimate life is a huge barometer of how your relationship overall is functioning and a healthy intimate life where there's connection consistency um safety fun is pretty crucial in my opinion to a successful long-term marriage and and relationship in general it's a good point and i think that speaks to the importance of frequency which you and i have talked about in the past it's usually worth the effort almost 100% of the time. If you're tired, it's usually worth the effort to make sure that it happens because you can feel the connection. It lasts. It, it fills so many tanks. Speaking from a man's perspective, it affects your confidence, your handshake, your motivation the next day. It just fuels this masculinity that enables you to conquer the world because a man feels most loved through 
sexual relations. It's it's just proven, yeah. right? Perfectly said, Brad. Perfectly said. Um, that that is such an important thing, and and that's a you know a, a big area of contention between men and women because. Uh, for women, they oftentimes find that the sexual experience is much more emotional based, and it seems to be as a as it, it, it it's a consequence of emotional connection. Whereas for males, it is the culmination of emotional connection. So there's a little bit of an offness between our two sets of of our two sets of needs. So um, sometimes it's hard because you know. You know, she's not feeling it, which is very common, and he needs it, which is very common. And somebody is going to be compromised a little bit in order for that to happen, for that to come together. And it's, in my opinion, it's if you know, if you're woman shopping, if you're looking for a wife, you know, or male shopping, husband shopping, you know, trying to find some level of compatibility where you share the common value, you know. I'm committed to being with you intimately. Um, I'm, commi- I'm committed to fulfilling your intimacy needs from both partners. That goes a huge long way you know, to recognize that what my partner needs in their intimate life is different than what I feel like I can give or even that, that which I need. And yet I'm still going to pay attention to that and turn that into my priority and vice versa big big a big deal you know where i think we've been sold a lie and this probably stems from the disney portrayal of love and sex and love making even i think the word or the phrase to make love is sort of bullshit in in terms of the act because there's a lot of thrusting involved and from my experience, a woman would rather be ravished rather than made love to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times a woman will try to generate the emotion required for ravishment without us realizing it. And it uh-huh. took a lot of time for me to come to this realization. But when we think that a woman is being irrational and not making any sense – a lot of times a fight is being created without maybe even them realizing it because it can't be ascribable to linear thinking such as this is where the fight started. This was the cause. Let's let's retrace our steps. It's not about that. There are emotional currents swirling within her because she is micro focused on the moment and we're so macro. We can't even understand those currents. Oh, yeah. And so you've talked about absorbing that energy realizing that even though it's sun shining on Sunday and Monday doesn't mean that a a hurricane isn't coming on Tuesday that can't be predicted, right? Meteorologists are terrible about predicting the weather. Well, I'm pretty terrible at predicting my woman's mood on Tuesday. But a lot of times this is all being created and it, there's some cloud coverage. Like we can't really see clearly what's happening behind the clouds. And I don't think we're supposed to because when we start to try to solve those clouds and label them like, well, that's cumulus clouds. And this is typically what they do. And from my experience, that's all linear thinking that she doesn't want to be a part of. She's not looking for a solution to the problem, but she sure does love the lovemaking that, that completes it all and then changes everyone's mood afterward. Yes, for sure. 
Definitely. Am I am I talking about those tens, or is, is is that what men think are crazy? Is that something that you see with all women? I definitely think that on some level or another, there's this is you know par for the course. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, who hasn't had that experience where you know we're just standing there, we're just acting like our regular day to day, and next thing you know. You know, some emotional jab has come lobbed across our way and we're trying to field it, right? And behind that is is the messages, I want to connect with you. I want to, I want you to tell me that you love me. I want you to um, hold me or be with me or have sex with me. Sometimes it's very strange for us. Oftentimes a man will be like, okay, well, you know, it's Tuesday night and tonight we'll probably be together and I'll buy her flowers. And, you know, it's like you said, A leads to B leads to C, right? But that's not the way she works, you know? And it is very frustrating because oftentimes there's no rhyme or reason. But not just that, there's such an opportunity for mis, um, a misunderstanding and an emotional, an emotional pain to occur because of that. And that, that, that oftentimes leads to long-term problems in people's relationship and their intimate life when there's too many of those signals that got crossed and the man didn't know how to respond to it or the woman felt rejected from it or however they misunderstood i had a case recently with a young couple they're beautiful young couple they were the most in love most in love young couple that had come to me for therapy and most people that are coming to me for therapy already they're uh they're not feeling too good about each other so this wonderful young couple comes and you know, we're talking over Zoom and they're all lovey-dovey. And uh, it was just so interesting because there was a, uh, about a, a seven or eight year miscommunication about their sexual needs that they wanted to talk to me about. And I was thinking to myself when I heard the story, especially from each one privately, I mean, I thought, you know, they were like two Boeing 747s going in opposite directions, you know? And uh, it was actually an interesting story because she was the one that wanted to be more intimate than he, which is, I find in general pretty rare. I mean, you know, I usually find that it's the man that's complaining that he's not getting enough or he's not getting the way he likes. But in this situation, it was the opposite. So I, um, I was listening to them and I, and I asked her and I said to her, you know, once, once the crying stopped and all the storytelling stopped and the long history of horrible feelings of rejection, et cetera, I, we, we moved into the solution phase of the therapy. So I said, so, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could come up with your best situation, case scenario with you and your husband, what would it look like? You know, so she said, well, the truth is, is that I'd like to be together with him twice a week, but at least once a week, and I'd be really happy. Okay. You know, got wrote it down on a piece of paper, got my notes. Then I went ahead and I had a, a session with him. I don't do sessions together. I always do them separately, by the way. That's just a different topic. We can talk about that later. But I got him on the phone and I heard his whole story. And he's telling me about the pressures at work and the pressure he feels at home and da 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 and like how much effort he has to put in and da 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 And he's, you know, complaining about it and just telling me that it was difficult for him as much as he loves her and does love her dearly. It's just a lot of pressure in his life. And he reacts to pressure in a very strong way. So after that whole thing, I said to him, you know, if you have a magic wand and you could tell me what you would like, he said, "Um, I think I'd be good with 
twice a week, but even once a week, I think I could do. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) They've been living with this for eight years, you know, and I was thinking to myself, wow. Like, I thought he was going to say, like, once every two months or something like that, because he just didn't seem to be that, you know, the way she described the whole situation, I thought for sure it was a huge missing of information here. The reality is that picking up on these cues and understanding each other is hard, you know? It's only sometimes we can, they they were lucky enough to come for help, and, you know, otherwise it would have plagued them for who who knows how much longer. But thank God we ironed the whole thing out, and they're doing great. That's incredible. As a former salesperson, I have used the magic wand technique many, many times. Oh, cool. And it's amazing how much it brings out of people when you ask them to to paint the perfect picture of what the solution looks like. Yeah. So I, I like that. I want to touch on something else you said earlier briefly was that on Tuesday it's going to happen. Does that mean that just by the way you said it led me to believe that you're in favor of scheduling sex? Totally. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> okay. Please, yeah. please elaborate. Sure, sure. I mean, I spend a lot of time online with young men and, you know, who are, I even have a, a person who I work with who very insistent that sex has to be spontaneous. It has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. It has to come from desire that she should be desirous, that it's just not the same. And my response to that is, <laughs> that is 100% correct. 100% correct. Great sex comes from mutual desire, you know, fantasy land of thinking and planning and, and anticipating 100%. But we're married now. Right? We, we're living in the real world. This is not a porno. This is not Disneyland, like you said earlier. This is not, you know, uh, any type of fantasy. This is the real world. And we all have jobs and we all have responsibilities and we all have the pressures of life. We have health issues. We have other things. So what I like to do with my clients is I set them up once a week is date night, sex night. The main thing is that it's sex night. It's not even date night. It's sex night. And what that basically means is that um, we know what night a week that's going to be. And we're both, both of us, are 100% committed to making it happen that night. And there are no excuses and there are no exceptions. That doesn't mean that there are no excuses or no exceptions. <laughs> what that means is that it's understood from both partners that we are going to be together. There's no pressure from one partner. There's no pushing or shoving or convincing or anything. It's we're both committed to being intimate this one night a week. And um, we can make of it whatever we want to make out of it. It could be a long lovemaking session. It could be just a quickie, whatever it is. But this way, we are physical and we have that intimate connection on a schedule once a week. If you want to have spontaneous, incredible sex the other six nights a week, go for it. One night a week, though, it's written into the books. And I find that that really changes a huge dynamic in the relationship. Because for many men, it totally removes the chasing, the constant chasing and the constant rejection that they're always feeling they need to do in order to be with their spouse. And for many women, 
it relieves them completely of all the pressure of every other night that week, feeling like their husband is constantly after them, bothering them, you know, cajoling them into trying to get them into bed. So it's like, you know, you have that one time a week and it just frees up both partners to just relax and enjoy each other. And like you said earlier, to keep that physical connection burning all the time. I hesitate to say this, but since we're being candid, I don't know that I would go to a marital therapist who married his high school sweetheart. Did you marry your high school sweetheart? Yeah, college. Okay, okay, close. <laughs> and the reason I say that is there are so many male-female dynamics that you wouldn't be aware of if you hadn't married your high school sweetheart. And I'll just give you a quick example. As a man, when you are getting the most sex is when a woman feels competition anxiety, which is she hasn't yet secured your exclusivity. And many men don't realize this and will jump into a relationship or marriage. A lot of times, 30, 40 years ago, men got married right away for sex. I think that was very common. And I think even today, men don't realize that women use sex as a tool to gain your exclusivity. Once they've secured it, that same anxiety goes away. If you've never dated as an adult, you've never experienced it and therefore couldn't advise someone on it. What do you think about what I just said? Um, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying and that there is um, a, a dynamic that I am not. People say that, you know, people, people come to me and they want dating advice. And I said, the last time I went on a date was 30 years ago. <laughs> It's not just that I'm 52. I, I've been married since I was 24 years old. And I didn't, you know, the only person I really dated for many years was my wife. So I haven't been on a date in 30 years. I do work with, with men who are dating, but where I feel like my area of expertise is, is the phase that, that is inevitable in every man's life when they want to take their relationship to the next level. Because every man and woman go through the same patterns. It doesn't mean we all react the same. But at some point, and I think I shared the article with you yesterday, Does She Desire Me? At some point, the relationship shifts. The dynamic shifts from, does she desire me? And is she, does she still want me? to do I desire her? I know it sounds a little strange, but that's what ends up happening. At some point, this wild sexcapade that we've been having for the first two years is going to eventually subside. And it doesn't mean you still can't have great sex afterwards, but the intellectual and emotional experience that you're having shifts from short-term mode to like long-term mode. And that's, to me, where the real challenge begins. When you're dating without commitment, yeah, I mean, you can use dread. That, I see that that works perfectly. You know, you tell a girl you're going to leave. You threaten to walk out. You don't call her for three, for three weeks. Yeah, you're gonna, you're, she's going to kind of get back in line. 
But that only works when you don't want an authentic, sincere relationship. When you want an authentic, sincere relationship, you don't want your wife who's, who's raising your children to be worried about whether or not you're going to come home tonight or whether or not you're going to speak to her for the next two weeks. It, it's totally dysfunctional. Well, what you were saying sounds more like gaming to me, where you're withholding attention, which is the lifeblood for women, withholding it by not texting or calling for a few weeks. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm just talking about the natural progression of dating to relationship to marriage. And the more secure a woman feels, the less anxious she's going to be, the less she needs to use her most powerful tool to secure that security. Exactly. Yeah, that's where, and that exact point in time is where the real challenge arises. How do we sustain a polarity and an excitement when we don't have to? That is the challenge. You're absolutely right. (laughs) My buddies who can't have sex when they want fall into the problem of what I was saying earlier, where they are not the leader in their relationship. And they have, I believe, lost frame. They've ceded control. And so what I encourage them to do, and I'm no expert, but I stayed a bachelor until I was 38. And I did have serious relationships of two or three years. And so I see a lot of commonalities in relationships or you get to know a lot of women and start to understand a lot of female psychology. And so what they've had success with, and then I will recommend other buddies of mine do the same, is that you can create situations where competition anxiety arises by eating well, keeping yourself in shape, going to the gym, making sure that you get your hair cut once every month, Think little things. Um, I even have a buddy who will bring up ever so subtly past escapades that he has had, like in college, and find that his woman, now she would never say this, but find that his woman is very turned on that night. And this conversation would have happened at dinner three hours prior. And so it could never be explained at the rational level. But something in her hindbrain said, this guy is desirable. And women tend to want men that other women want. So if you can create those sort of dynamics in your relationship, there is desire that will come forth and it sometimes is not explainable. So that can be a way to work through it. Yeah. I mean, my preferred go-to and my preferred methodology and my, the whole uh, philosophy that I have when I work with couples is that I kind of flip that script. It's not my job to make her desire me. It's her job to desire me if she wants a good marriage. Mm. And it's not her job to attract me. It's my job to be attracted to her if I want a good marriage. If I don't want a good marriage, I'll allow myself to drift drift into either pornography or just resentment or just complacency. I won't have a good marriage. And if she can just, you know, lean into the fact that maybe she's not in the mood or who needs it anyways, or we, we did a lot of sex when we were younger, she could do that, in which case she'll have a disaster of a marriage. So 
we need to take responsibility. That's what I'm trying to say. What I was trying to say a little bit earlier in the beginning phases of a relationship, it's, you know, I'm always trying to get her to desire me and, and it's easy. In the later stages of a relationship, my job is to desire her and her job is to desire me. If you get both people on that same path where they recognize that we're done playing games, yeah, he can have a little bit of a, you know, a, pudge, a pudgy stomach and she could have gained weight and never lost it from some of the kids and maybe didn't get a haircut. Who cares? You want a good relationship? You want a good marriage? You want to have a guy who listens to your problems and provides for you and is enthusiastic about raising your children together and comes home with flowers? Do you want that? Okay, then you need to want him in these ways. You don't want that? Okay, then just continue watching soap operas and wearing sweats and doing whatever else that you know has, has gotten you to the place where you're calling me in the first place. You're responsible. I never teach a man to go monkey dog and pony show to try to get her to desire him. No way. I teach men to do those things that you're talking about. Get your hair cut, work out, do well, in, do well in, in your job because that's what gives him strength and that's what brings up his masculinity for him. And he's going to feel good doing that stuff. But I'm not into men chasing the desire of their spouse and I'm not into women chasing the desire of their husband. And I speak about it passionately because I am passionate about it. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm coming from a place of passion myself. <laughs> but I think that's constructive. So I think we're having a great conversation and I hope yeah. it continues. <laughs> yeah. The manosphere that you've mentioned a few times believes that desire is not negotiable. I've read where feminine-centric marital therapists tend to preach that desire can be negotiable in a sort of if-then way. If he will do this, then this. What are your thoughts on that? Again, I don't care about desire. I eliminate the problem completely. When we show up together to be intimate, you're on your best behavior and I'm on my best behavior. I'm committed to making you feel special, loved, um, comfortable, safe, and you're committed to doing the same for me and treating me in a way that brings out the most pleasure or, or a, a, you know, a decent amount of pleasure. You're not going to fulfill every fantasy I have. And that's it. Your desire is your problem. I don't, I don't care what the desire is negotiable. First of all, I disagree with that. I can make a woman desire me more or less based on how I behave. If I create more emotional state, in my opinion, now this is something that the manager would disagree with. I can create greater emotional safety. I can do more acts of lovingness and kindness around the house. I can be a better husband. I can um, be a better provider. I can be more present in our conversations. So I definitely think that, that I can arouse a sense of uh, love, affection, and intimacy from my partner. But I don't care. I mean, I, I, I preach doing all those things anyways, because otherwise, how do you have a connection with somebody? And that's why I'm married. I'm married because I want to have a connection. But I don't dive into that, you know, um, that whole rigmarole of trying to being alpha and trying to get her to desire me, et cetera, and stuff like that. I don't do that. How much of your marital counseling 
stems from your own marriage experience? A lot. Mm. Yeah, a lot. And also from, you know, from obviously from the school that I went to, it's, it's so interesting going to marriage therapy school because you're outnumbered 20 to one. I think there were two guys and 40 girls. <laughs> so you really see a different perspective on what relationships are, are like and what they're all about. You know, because you're, all the classes, all the conversations are extremely gynocentric. And so you gain some insights that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of on your own. I'll bet. I have a buddy who's an OBGYN, and he was outnumbered 30 to 1 in his med school classes. <laughs> I have friends who will stay at the office until 6, 7 p.m. because they get more respect at the office than they do at home. So yeah. they come home, and they're, they're like, I am deserving of respect, but I'm not getting it. And so mm -hmm. I actually wrote an article for men called Navigating Relationships for Men, where I encourage men to ignore the idea that they will get an attaboy from home. You don't, you're not a child. You don't need praise for what you're accomplishing out in the world in being able to provide and protect your family. So let go of that need for praise and realize that women are more micro-focused, whereas you are more macro-focused. And I give the example of a man closing a a million dollar deal at work and getting a hundred thousand dollar commission check, which will maybe pay off the house or put a kid through college and they come home and they're excited to tell their wife, well, he forgot to get the milk on the way home at the grocery store. So she couldn't give two shits about you providing this kid being able to get through Harvard with your closed business deal. It does not matter in the realm of the feminine. She is micro-focused. Am I giving my buddies good advice to not need the pat on the back and understand the it. difference between the micro and the macro? I love it. I love it. And I think it's just, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's tremendous advice. And I think you and I see eye to eye on this. I wrote, I wrote a, um, a, a blog post, Does He Need Love and Respect? And uh, it goes through that very discussion. One of the distinctions that I like to make is that we men have this desire. We, you and I talked about this before, but um, there's this dynamic that that talks about that women crave love and men need respect. And a lot of therapy books have been written on this. A lot of great marriage books. And the truth is, is that I agree with that 100. percent Women crave love and men need respect 100. percent However, I believe that it leaves men oftentimes at a disadvantage and it leaves us vulnerable to disappointment, um, resentment, depression, insecurity, and depression. Because if we don't get that respect, see, respect is something that can only be given by the person. It's, it can't be something that I can demand. It's only, it's only given by your partner. So I'm at the whim of my partner, whether or not I feel respected, right? I don't want to live my life like that, where I'm constantly trying to elicit some sort of, like you said, attaboy or pat on the back. Forget that. That completely sucks all my power away from me. Instead, what I like to focus on is to be treated respectfully. 
and let her deal with whether or not she respects me or not. Meaning it's in the woman's best interest to respect her husband. I would hate to be a woman in a marriage where I don't respect my husband. That would suck. Right? So she has to work herself on seeing the different ways, the thousands of ways in which her partner is deserving of respect. And I do this with women all the time when they, when they work with me. I, I have them write gratitudes. I have them write appreciations. I have them write lists of reason why he should be respected. That's her job. The only thing I work with him on, obviously, if there's nothing to be respectful about him, but I've never met a man where there's nothing that you can't respect about him. But what I work with him on is how to be treated respectfully. Being treated respectfully is a function of setting boundaries on the way you're spoken to and the way you're related to. If I'm treated with respect, which every person, obviously including your husband or your wife, deserves, I'm good to go. That's all I need. I don't need the pat on the back. I don't need any of that stuff. I just want to be treated respectfully. Whether you respect me or not, that's <laughs> between you and God. I, I can't control whether you respect me or not. I'm not going to run around trying to get, a, like you said, a pat on the back for things that I've done. What do you think about that? I like what you said about why he should be respected and having reasons one, two, three, four. The, the biggest differentiator I can think of for love and respect is that women love very easily. And I'm sure you see this in your counseling. Women come to you and they almost always think that they love their man more than he loves her. And I think that it's because women and men love differently. I think a lot of times women think that paying attention to small details of her man's needs is love. Men don't love the same way. I think when women say, I love you, it's not hard for them to say. I think they will tell their 15th best friend that they love them. But when a man says that I love you, it's harder. And one of the reasons it's so much harder for a man to say it is because when he's saying it, what he's saying is I would die for you. That is not expected of women. And that's understandable, right? We'll be the last one off the Titanic. That's that's how God designed us. Yeah. And so if I were advising women, because of all the reasons I just gave, if I were to want to express love for my husband, let's say it's his birthday or it's Father's Day, or we're celebrating an anniversary, if you want to demonstrate your love by announcing it on social media, let's say you make a Facebook post, you would be a hundred X better if you were to say, we respect you so much, and here's why. Because of man's inherent need for respect, not love, and because of the understanding that she just said the same thing to her 15th best friend on her birthday, we love you to the moon and back. It's a throwaway line. It doesn't mean anything. It took you no time to think of that. But if you want to put some thought into it and for it to mean something to him, which is what is most important here, you're doing it for him. Right. You're not boasting about your relationship to show, oh, look at us. We're the fun couple making a funny face or we're so in love. We can show ourselves kissing and 
It's just so stupid. If you want to demonstrate for him, if you're doing this for him, you will take five minutes of your time, list out the reasons you respect him, and then let his buddies know, if you want to let the world know, why it is that you respect him. That dude's friends will think he is the shit because that man's woman respects him and here's why. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That, that's, that's what I think of that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you giving it some thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm tired of seeing it. These, these women post, yeah. oh, I, I love you so much. Yeah, I know. But you want love. Don't project what you want. We know you want love, but we want respect. So, so offer respect on social media if you're trying to boast and make us feel special. Right. Right. You know, one of the interesting kind of structural and framework type issues that I work with men on is this idea that water flows downwards. And what I mean when I say water flows downwards is that as men, we're focused on our wives and our kids. And that's where our energy goes, flowing down. A woman is focused, she's, and I hope no one takes this the wrong way, but emotionally in terms of the hierarchy of the relationship from a spiritual perspective, she's focused on what's downwards from her, which is her children and her family. So oftentimes as men, we kind of think that this is going to be a 50-50 in terms of we get back what we give in, or she should be putting in the same amount of um, energy to us as we are to her. It doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a flow downwards of energy, and that's the masculine. Like you just said, we're going to be the last one off the Titanic, not her. It's understood that in so many ways, it's going to come from above to below. And then for us to expect that she's going to turn around and kind of arch her head upwards and kind of shoot energy back up our way is just a recipe for disaster. It doesn't work that way. So when we set our frame properly, we recognize that, you know, our lot in life, the meaning that we have as men is when we are able to create a safe environment to foster the development of her and our children. That's what we want. Even from a biological perspective, that's always been the way it's been, meaning she was never there to protect me. She's there to create children and further our family. I'm just That's from a pure biological perspective, but even from a spiritual perspective, it's the same way. And from an emotional perspective, it's the same way. It's a bitter pill to swallow that you're not going to get back from her that which you put in. It's never going to come back the same way, not in quantity or in quality. Um, and, and that's not to take anything away from the love that a woman has for, for her husband. I'm not, we can have a long show about that. It's a totally different type of love. And it's a beautiful and very intense love. And I'm not trying to criticize anybody. I'm just trying to help, help men put their head on straight. And we need to let go of this idea that she is that, that of reciprocation in love. It's not going to happen. We're blessed when we can give. That's our blessing. And when we can give and she receives and we build something together with, through that dynamic, that's our blessing. 
I believe it was Nassim Taleb who said that true generosity is when you're willing to help the ingrate. So I like that. <laughs> Do you think that there's something hardwired into women's brains not to be grateful? Um, not to be grateful? I don't think it's so much not to be grateful. I just don't know if there's an, a recognition or understanding of um, our experience that, that's connected to what I just said. And sacrifice? I don't think they, they, don't think they, they um, have the... Because it's not something that they do necessarily or that they're born to do, that this is how they feel like they need to, to do, I don't think that they recognize what we go through. And by the way, I think it's very similar to our misunderstanding of our misunderstanding of them and their children and children. There is a um, incredible amount of attention, love, and giving that a woman does to her child, to her children, that we as men don't are not connected to. Let me tell you a little bit about me, and I'll ask you a question that is a curveball. Okay. Throughout my career, I focused a lot on maximizing my energy. I worked two jobs. I exercised almost daily. I ate well, made sure to sleep enough. I got a lot of the fundamental things right. I also benefited greatly from something which at that time had no proper name that I knew of anyway. But in the process of mastering this, I became really energized and focused and I'm starting to teach it to my students, my, my coaching clients. And it's called semen retention, which is basically just not ejaculating. Are you familiar with the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon yes. Hill? Yes, I am. Great book. So chapter 11 deals with this specifically. The chapter is called The Mystery of Sex. And what he talks about is the transmutation of sexual energy. And he gives examples of people. I think he gives examples of people throughout history who have had a lot of success that had very high sex drives and might even cite examples going back 2,000 years. It's been a while since I read the book. But he says the emotion provided by sex has constructive potentialities, the, the obvious being the perpetuation of mankind. But secondly, the maintenance of health and keenness of imagination and willpower and courage and persistence, which I think is the theme of the book, the overarching theme of Think and Grow Rich is to persist, persist. So through the power of sexual transmutation, I read the book in my early 20s. I thought that the, the author was conveying that, in fact, he said this expressly, that you could transmute mediocrity into genius. And so anytime I felt this urge to physically, I craved the act, let's say, or some sort of release, train myself to switch my mind from a physical expression to an energized effort that would produce output. It, I would be productive in any sort of creative endeavor where I might have to structure a contract or negotiate a deal or give a sales presentation. And I also felt like it gave me a psychological edge. 
because I knew that I could constrain myself where other men could not. And so I felt like restricting those juices gave me a competitive fire. And, and that's how I thought of it. Like I'm not, I'm going to allow these juices to brew. It's going to start a fire and I'm going to be unstoppable. And oh. I credit a lot of my success to this book for this specific chapter. So I know this is a question you've never had, but since you, since we talked about sex and you deal with this sort of thing, I don't know who else I could ask the question. In the context of a relationship, how would you, in essence, stay sharp? I have a, a wildly successful buddy of mine who would say, most of the gains in life, most of the rewards are going to come from delayed gratification. The best way to do it, because it's so insistent, because you naturally produce this, this seed of life that you're trying to withhold, the best way to do it is to stay sharp. So, which is this retention that I'm talking about. Is there a way that this could be done in the context of a relationship that could benefit you the same way? Have you ever been asked that question before? <laughs> Not quite in the way that you're saying it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's a very powerful idea. I've, I've, you know, there's a lot of different types of sex, you know, tantric sex and all these different types of things which focus on uh, semen retention and um, delayed gratification. So I think that it's, I definitely think it's out there. I don't think it's only Napoleon Hill that is, you know, the, the only one that speaks about it. Um, I find that when it comes to relationships within the context of a marriage, this exact idea that you're referring to is one of the most powerful forces of unifying husband and wife. I know it sounds counterintuitive because if you're not being intimate, you might think, or if you're struggling with it, you might think that it would cause a separation. But it's actually a very unifying force. And it and it it trans it transfers over to all of your higher characteristics, patience, fidelity, loyalty, um, communication. Why is that? Because what ends up happening is if you dedicate your body and your semen, so to speak, to your wife, and you don't act like a raging bull and kind of force force it, but rather work with her on her schedule that correlates with yours, so a mutually beneficial schedule. You have to cultivate all of these character traits that you never would have cultivated before. You have to learn how to smile when you've been rejected for the third night in a row. You have to learn how to continue showing up with loving kindness and patience when all you really want to do is be together. You have to face the fact that when she is not in the mood or she's rejecting you, that there's nowhere to go. You're not going to just whip out a magazine and take care of your needs. You have to face your demons where you think it's all about you and she's touching an internal wound and she's hurting you. And these are all your childhood wounds just coming to the surface, having nothing to do with 
um, her actual rejection of that desire that you have. So when you, when you, it also forces a deeper connection between you and her because she kind of gets tuned into your rhythm. Like I had a couple that I was working with. I don't know. Can you tell another story that please that has to do with yeah. So I had a couple that I was working with where um, a great, great couple and a lot of progress. And every once in a while, these weird things come out of, you know, left field. And, uh, you know, the woman, you know, gets on the, gets on the phone with me and she says, you know, one thing that bothers me is that when I reject my husband, he likes to um, take care of himself in bed while I'm there. And there was a lot of things that are brought up from her, including feeling a little violated, this and that, and grossed out. There was a whole whole slew of things that came up. But one thing that did, you know, one thing that ended up resulting from this is that I kind of worked with them both on creating a pact where he was going to stop doing that and she was going to be more attentive to his physical needs. And it just not only did it change him because he knew he couldn't just take care of it. So even on the nights that she wasn't able to be with him, he still wanted to show up as that loving husband without any bitterness, whereas before he would get bitter or just isolate. So he grew as a person, but it also got her much more in touch with him and his needs in a more compassionate, loving way. Cause she knew that if she said no, he was going to be quote unquote suffering and saving himself for her and it was just like this beautiful dynamic that was created from that where they were both really connected to each other in a sacrificial way that i felt like really elevated their love for each other my advice would be to and again i'm not the expert i understand that would be to communicate up front what your needs are when you're younger as a man, you may need it every day. As you get older, it may be every other day. Early on in a relationship, that can be communicated. And so a lot of your success in any aspect of life, including relationships, is how well you communicate. So I mentioned earlier that I have a coaching company. Communication is something we focus on very, very much because it carries over into every aspect of your business, of your life whether you're trying to get a job, close a business deal, uh, get grant money, have a, a successful marriage. One of the, the things that I've read that's recommended is to go in separate rooms. If you have trouble communicating that face-to-face, because I know a lot of people are uncomfortable doing that, you can go in the other room and get on some sort of instant messaging and just talk via laptop to laptop if that helps you. Whatever it takes, this is just too important to let it just lie for 10 years and then have to pay for expensive therapy to to discover these problems that should have been taken care of from the jump. So I even have trouble hearing you say a man getting rejected by his partner. I'm going to be candid again. I've never experienced that. I have a tough time imagining a situation in a relationship or marriage where sex is rejected with my buddies who have abdicated their role. I see them abdicating their role in being lazy fathers. It's just, they're just unmotivated. And I think that's where a lot of the spark is eroded because 
Nothing turns a woman off faster than an unambitious man who has no desire to get his ass up off the couch. And I think that there's no equivalent the other way. If there is, it's a woman adding 25 pounds and not caring to do anything about it. Whereas women aren't as looks driven. They're, they're not focused that way. So that would be the equivalent. A man losing his job and having no desire to get another one and a woman gaining 25, 50 pounds and having no desire to get rid of it. We're just attracted to different things. Right. And I hear that. And I have to tell you, like you said that we could disagree on things. So I will disagree with you on this. Um, I, I definitely think that there's room for what you're saying. But over the course of a lifetime together, people change. You know, it, it's well documented. A woman after childbirth is very often much less likely to be a same guy, same provider, same handsome man, same guy who works out the gym, same guy bringing in the money home, same guy attentive to her needs. She, she loses her libido. You know, things like this happen all the time. Not just that. Emotional things. Somebody could lose a parent. Somebody could be in a, in a, in a fight with a good friend. Somebody can lose a job, like you said. Life happens. You could have a kid who has a health issue. Do you know what a child having a health issue does to an intimate, intimate life between parents? It's devastating. I knew a young couple, you know, unfortunately, they were, they, you know, fantastic family life. She was walking across the street with her daughter, five-year-old daughter. The daughter got hit by a car and got killed. Their life together changed. Every time they made love, which became very infrequent, all the woman can think about was that this is what they did to create this daughter and look at what happened. Mm. So things in life shift. And I'm so happy for you <laughs> that you are unfamiliar with this extremely common and highly prevalent situation, primarily experienced by men and sometimes experienced by women, where even though in the dating phase, it was like bunnies and they just had this great dynamic, shortly after marriage, things change. And that's just life, you know, for, for many, many people. Yeah. So it uh, doesn't have to be therapy. doesn't have to be expensive therapy. <laughs> no. uh, but sometimes people need to readjust how they choose to maintain their intimate connection. Whenever we're speaking in generalities, I think it's important to acknowledge that there might be exceptions, but it's hard to have a conversation if, if you can't speak in generalities. Like you prefaced something earlier with, I hope no one takes this the wrong way. Well, you, you can't account for every situation, which is what mm. transgender folks would have us do. I, I asked, I sometimes ask millennials just for the hell of it. What percentage of the population do you think is gay or lesbian? Do you know what they say? The common answer? 50%. Yeah, it's usually between 30 and 40%. Uh -huh. I'm like, no, that's maybe what our media would have you believe. But it's just, it's hard to have a discussion. I mean, I would think, of course, if your daughter was hit by a car, you're going to, there are going to be exceptions in your relationship. Well, that uh, someone the gets only cancer if, if that I mean, wasn't the only example. No, I, mean, I know. I know. I'm just. Dead bedrooms is a real thing. And yeah. It's not something, it's not the exception. It's, yeah. it's a plague. 
And it's for all different types of reasons, of all different types of reasons. Maybe the man is not emotionally available. Maybe the woman just is working too hard. I'm telling you, I've heard hundreds of different reasons why the intimacy is off kilter. And rejection happens all the time. Mm. I don't even know any man who can consistently come up to their wife and say, let's have sex. And she turns to him with a big smile on her face and says, sure, honey, let's go ahead and do it. Mm. No way. Now, maybe I'm, I'm talking about exceptions. So hopefully you are the exception. That'd be wonderful if, if, that's, if that's the life that you're leading. But the life that you're leading is for sure the exceptional life. I am intentional about frame and all these sorts of things we, we kind of touched on. There are all these little rules that I live by and quotes that I internalize. And one of them is it was sort of self-generated just based on the wisdom of older people and married men. And it was, you'll be having sex the rest of your life. Don't worry about it right now. <laughs> and so that kind of kept me from chasing tail until 2 a.m. on the weekends in my 20s, which enabled me to focus on what was important. There is other wisdom that I gleaned from older friends who had been married many years that said, don't marry for sex. Your wife is going to stop having sex with you eventually anyway. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm fully aware of when I say something that <laughs> it's, um, it's not always going to be true <clears throat> and that there are exceptions to generalities. But I think this is an important conversation so that people know that there are guys out there who are never rejected and there are things that you can do to improve your batting average if you are getting rejected. And I gave some examples earlier about keeping in shape or if you find that talking about your past sexual conquests helps, even though a woman may never admit to it. Uh, there are little things that you could do to create a sort of anxiety, but it's not, a, it's not real anxiety. It's not even the proper word. But Competition. Yeah, competition because hypergamy is a real thing and so is variety, right? And I think those are probably as equal as the example I gave of women gaining weight and men losing their job. Women tend to seek the highest value male they can get and men tend to seek variety. And it's up to both of us to put the reins on that. This is such an interesting discussion. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving it. I wanted to add one more thing about staying sharp. With the internet is the most powerful tool that man has ever created if you use it well. And as a young man or as a man of any age, you don't want to be viewing the same video that some 14-year-old kid in Chesterburg, West Virginia is viewing because how you allocate your time is going to be the largest determinant of how your life works out. So if you want to be in the same place that 14-year-old kid is five, 10 years from now, by all means, start looking at the same videos he's looking at. But you can use what is the greatest tool for wealth creation ever devised by man and get smarter and dominate your competition if you're in that world of, of competing. And most of us are if we're in the marketplace or in the corporate world. And you can build your own empire. And I think that is is fulfilling as long as you are, uh, you find something where you're in flow state and serving other people. Definitely. I'm curious, how did you get into therapy in the first place? 
Good question. I got married when I was 24. You like talking about finances on the show. I right? do, yes. Okay, good. So I can actually be kind of, can I be brutally honest about how much I made and all that stuff? Like, is that interesting to people? That's all we do here. Okay, good. So I started out my life married at 24. I had nothing to my name and I was a sociology major in college, leading me to absolutely nothing to do with myself. Uh, right after I got married. Wait, how much having, debt? Uh, it wasn't that bad. It was probably about, back then, college was $10,000 a year. So and that was for private school. So I probably had about $25,000 in debt. I didn't even think about it. It was like, just, I didn't even know that, I, you know, when I got my first stub that said I owed money to the government for college, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> so I started out when I was 24 and I got married, no career, no nothing. I did like MLM marketing stuff. I sold like, I was a traveling salesman for jewelry, total disaster, hit on the way, no income. And uh, eventually I went to computer school when I was about 27. I finally, my wife is just like enough of this BS, whatever you're doing. And I learned how to code, you know, the famous phrase, learn to code. I learned, I learned to code. My first job, I was making about $25,000 a year. By the time I was 32, which is about five years later, I was making about $320,000 a year. I didn't even know what to do with all this money that was lying around. I wish I knew you back then. You would have told me some smart things to do with it, but I didn't. Uh, we bought a house. We, we had moved. We bought a house. You know, computer market back then was explosive. You know, One thing I didn't like about it was that I, I, I felt like I was trading my time for money. And so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even take a vacation. Like I couldn't, my, my wife wanted to go to like Disneyland for a week. You know? I was a consultant. So I said, okay, it's not the $5,000 that it's going to cost us to go to. I have $5,000. I could write that. No problem. It's the $8,000 on top of the $5,000 that I'm going to lose by not being at work. So I was like in this golden handcuff situation where I could not leave my desk for a minute because every time I left my desk, I was losing tons of money and I couldn't stand that. And eventually I started a, a phone business back in the day when mobile phones were just starting. And so I started selling products instead of trading my time for money. I, you know, I was able to scale that a lot better. Fast forward many years and um, my income went down. I never, I never recaptured those days of making so much money, but my, I had so much more freedom. And eventually I just decided that I didn't want to be behind the computer desk the whole time. I didn't want to just always be staring at a screen and always doing technology and always working with coding and phones. And I wanted to work with people. So when I was 45, I, 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 I looked into, I researched going to computer, uh, going to graduate school for therapy. I always had a desire to work with people, but an interesting story, you know, I was so nervous because I was 45 and it's a five-year program. So I went to my father and I said to him, you know, what do you think I should do, dad? You know, I'm 45. I won't be a therapist, a licensed therapist until I'm 50. So my father, he only asked me two questions. He said, number one, can you physically do it? Can you go to school and run your business at the same time? So I said, yeah. He says, you can graduate and you, would, you could do the coursework and everything. I said, yes. Okay, question number two. Do you actually enjoy therapy? Do you enjoy it? I said, yes. He said, well, there's your answer. 
He says, if you're doing something that you love, you're going to be 50 anyway. The only question is, do you want to spend the next five years doing something that you love and enabling yourself to do it for the rest of your life or not? And I was like, wow, that was so simple. <laughs> and I signed up and became a therapist and graduated when I was, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of uh, experience before then, but graduated and that's it. Now I do therapy uh, at least 50% of my time. And I still have my technology business that's kind of running itself for the most part. And just loving it, loving working with people, getting phone calls, getting involved, you know, expressing myself. That's awesome. I love that story. And you're 52 now, correct? Yes, that's correct. What an advantage to have a wise father that could give you those, or at least ask you those questions to get you to think for yourself. Yeah. On my 40th birthday, I wrote a top 40 list of advice for my 20-year-old self. And number nine was that your family will always encourage you to play it safe rather than take risks. The reason is they share your pain of losing more than they share in the fruits of your success. Interesting. And as we know from gambling, for example, the pain of losing is always felt about two and a half X the joy of winning. So it hurts a lot more to lose than to than it does feels good to win. Yeah. So my advice was to seek wise counsel and then draw your own conclusions. But from my own life, the advice that I've gotten from family has always been to shy away from risk and it was only in, when I got into my 30s that I started to finally take some risk, or about 27 years old, that I finally uh-huh. take some risk. And I've really reaped the rewards of, of taking those risks. And I wish that I had taken more like when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. I'm just so thankful to my father for being so wise and you know for hearing me out and just leaving it up to me, but with the obvious conclusion already drawn. You know, It's great. Is he still with us? No, he passed, he passed on. So shortly after I started school, he passed away at the ripe old age of 85. 85. Well, that bodes well for you. <laughs> That's great. I listened yeah. to your episode called Maintaining Frame or Being a Jerk. Yes. And there was another one you wanted me to listen to. I think that was episode 14. What was the other one you wanted me to listen to? How to Lose Your Wife. <laughs> yes. So I loved both of those. What I liked about maintaining frame or being a jerk is you talked about men who become leaders in the workplace because of their ability to get things done, but that they're, it seemed wholly unprepared to be leaders of their household, but you also, which we touched on, but you also talked about allowing for space for your wife or partner to have agency, to make their own decisions. And you use the example of the mother-in-law relationship with a wife. Huh. That one could, can be explosive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you'll have to remind me a little bit more of that one. <laughs> right now I'm drawing a blank. Well, I think what was happening is the husband was trying to intervene in the relationship with the wife and the mother-in-law, the wife's mother-in-law, which is his mom. Uh-huh. And you were you were probably using him, if I remember correctly, as an example to say that your solutions aren't needed here that the wife has her own agency. You need to give her space to make her own decisions, set her own boundaries as it pertains to that relationship. And I thought that was brilliant. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I talk a lot about that when it comes to um, mothers and children also. Uh, it's a very important it, it, it's a very important concept where um, we're taught as men, especially in the manosphere, to be the leaders and to take control, etc. And that is very, very important. But part of that dynamic of taking control and being the leaders is create, and this is true for your wife, and it's also true, it's, it's even more true for your children, is giving space for others to have decisions, make decisions, experience the mistakes that they make, and have them grow within their own bubble. That doesn't necessarily bode negative for you as the leader, as long as you've got your ship going in the direction that you're looking to take it. Allowing wide berth for the people that are along with you for the ride, the people who you're caring for, to have a say in their own destiny is huge. You know, it, 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 it creates a sense of community. It creates a sense of emotional safety. It creates a sense of responsibility, participation, uh, especially with children. And with children, it's even harder than with your wife because children's mistakes, you feel responsible as a parent to make sure that they never get anything wrong or they never hurt their knee or, you know, get a bad grade in school. And, um, Part of the idea is, and I see this a lot in therapy as well, where the men oftentimes feel like she didn't listen to me, so she doesn't respect me, or she's not doing what I say, so she's obviously not submissive to me, or how do you expect me to be the leader if, you know, whenever I give her all these great suggestions, she just blows them off? No, that's not true at all. You can lead from a more external position. And at the same time, give her the room to make a lot of decisions for her own life and even for many of your own. And just because you have a honeydew list on a Sunday and you end up doing a whole list of things doesn't mean that you're not leading in your relationship. Doesn't mean you're not maintaining frame. You don't need the final say in every single decision in order to keep that frame alive. What do you think about that? I think marital therapy would be such a tough job right now because I can tell you from my dating experience, things change so much between the time I was, say, 27 and 34. Because if generations used to be 20 to 25 years, now, because of technology and the, the accelerating pace of change, it's something like four years, yeah. <laughs> figuratively speaking, of course. So you wouldn't believe the amount of arrogance and selfie culture that is being produced by social media and the validation needed and the attention required. It is tough out there. And, and that's speaking more from the man's perspective and what they're encountering. For women, they're encountering men who don't want to grow up, who spend their time playing video games. They're they're not engaging in courtship at all. They're just swiping apps. Totally. Courtship is out of the window. So somebody, totally. a couple coming to you ha who has fallen into marriage because they swiped an app and then moved in together because that's what everybody else was doing. And then after they were together for five years, decided, hey, why don't we, uh, I think we just are supposed to get married now. It's a whole new world. So trying to advise a couple that is, in their 30s that went through that life 
it's going to be so different from advising somebody like me who's more traditional, traditional in that my wife and I didn't live together before we were married. We traveled, uh-huh. but she lived at home and that's her. She's from a different culture. That's how they do it in their culture. So she lived at home until we were married or versus a couple who married their high school sweetheart and they've known no other lover. And now they're 30 years into marriage and they have a dead bedroom, for example, mm-hmm. or he's had an affair. It's just I can't imagine all the different dynamics that you might have to deal with and then trying to come with a coherent message to perform an awesome tweet like you regularly do that is timeless and universal. I'm like, this guy is on fire. How does he do it? So I don't know if you've been exposed to some of these dynamics that I mentioned with with younger people especially, but the world is changing so fast. And that means that relationships are changing. And my biggest fear is that relationships are being ruined because as you know, in in the African-American community, the out of wedlock birth rate has gone from something like 20% in 1960 to something like 75% nowadays. And then you've got what I just explained, which is typical more of the uh, young urban population. It's just a mess. <laughs> I think that, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that young boys are lauded for, for exhibiting more feminine characteristics. So we're seeing so much androgyny where there's a lack of polarity and we think that friendship is the mecca of relationships and it's just it's not because both sides are yearning for something that i think is from a bygone era yeah so i admire you for partaking in this in this (laughs) role it's got to be tough it's got to be so tough well, you know, it's it's everything you said completely resonates with me. I mean, I, I do see a wide spectrum of different situations, different, um, what I would say, core beliefs that they come into the relationship with that sometimes shock me, you know, totally shock me. But I have to say that one of the things, once I started working on Twitter, since you and I are both fam- familiar with the Red Pill community, I can share with you a funny story about that. You know, after I finished graduate school and I wanted to start working online a lot, I wanted to get my voice out there online. So I'm going to Twitter and I'm typing in like, you know, masculinity and male, this and that. And, you know, before I know it, I'm deep down dive into the red pill community. You know, I'm this Hasidic Orthodox Jewish traditional guy. (laughs) And next thing you know, I'm typing away and like arguing with all these red pill people all the time. And I, and I was fantasizing to myself, oh, well. I can really get into this and I learn about Rolo Tomasi and I can like really become like something here and I can like become a therapist for these guys because I want to use my techniques and da da da. Within about two months, I had succeeded in getting blocked by every major red pill channel that was out there. Everybody blocked me. And I sat back after all these tweets and I'm like, what? How did I get blocked? I'm like the next upcoming red pillar. <laughs> And that's really what started my own voice um, on Twitter. That's when I just said, you know what? This was like a sign from God. Or I, either that or I was acting like a total idiot. One of the two. I'm okay with both. But I need to come up. I cannot fold underneath this other attitude. I have my own voice. And um, that's when I started putting out my own content that was just coming from my heart and from my mind and from my experience. And I can tell you that one of the most interesting pieces of that is that 
I get to work with the most diverse group of people. I have clients in, I have wealthy clients in Greece that live on Greek islands, all the way to um, modern women from Kenya and Nigeria, all the way to men in South Africa, uh, South America, Canada, United States, the Middle East, Israel, uh, India. It's amazing. And I can share with you that in spite of all the truths that you said, and they are true, the dynamics between men and women, no matter where you're from, and no matter what generation you live in, are so similar. The issues that people talk about are almost always the same. And yes, there are cultural challenges that I have to weed out. And yes, there are age differences. But really, at the, at the end of the day, women want to be loved and men want to provide and protect. And we want to be reciprocated in our feelings towards each other. And we want to be respected and connected with. And it's almost always the similar issues that I see no matter where you're from. It's pretty interesting. I've seen a study where the larger a woman's eyes are, the more the need to provide and protect kicks in for a male. <laughs> I found that fascinating. And that's across the mammal spectrum. It might even be reptilian. I don't know where it comes from, but it applies to humans. And I found it fascinating. And I know that to be a fact for me. I see those doe eyes and I'm like, oh, I want to provide and protect for you. That's right. I've always been attracted to women with larger eyes. And with regard to Rolo Tom, is his name Rolo Tomasi? Rolo Tomasi. Tomasi. Okay. So without knowing who he was, I have since read his book. Yes. But I was able to, because I was still single, I was able to implement some of his strategies. Yes. And I can tell you that they do work. Yeah. So for example, men do suffer from this one-itis, which, which aids the feminine-centric society that we live in. So ah. women are fed a whole lot of lies, and men are buying into those same lies. And I can give you examples. So women think that they can have it all, or they're told that they can have it all. They, they cannot. They have to make choices, unfortunately, because they have a biological clock that men don't have, if, they, if that's what they want which most women do, I'm speaking in generalities, of course, that their reasoning faculties are equal to that of a man. That is another thing that we are lied to about, that they're smarter than us. They're, they're not smarter than us. They have certain intelligences, and so do we. But if you had a room full of women and said women are smarter than men, they would all cheer. And if you said men are smarter than women, the men would not cheer. So uh, just the fact that women are always right because they have less control of their emotions. It's this whole happy wife, happy life idea that a lot of men have bought into. And any men that I've heard say that is miserable. So I would, I would never buy into that. Men and women are essentially the same. I think we are not, although our relationship issues, it sounds like, are the same. That women should be loved for who they are, which is something I heard you say. However, the only caveat to that would be you need to, as a man, if you're vetting, determine whether they're self-obsessed and have nothing to offer. Because if you are dating online, the overwhelming majority of online profiles 
a woman will not even tell you what she has to offer. It is all about her. So you need to vet for that sort of thing. If I were coaching women to make a, a profile, it would have something to do with, here's what I offer. And say maybe something about respecting men and why. I mean, that, that goes a long way. But we, we live in a culture where more young women are adapting historically masculine tendencies of arrogance and self-obsession. And it, it's just, it's, it's ugly to see. So I would like to see women also improve themselves to be a suitable and desirable mate. And I think that when we had our own hierarchies, older women advised younger women on how to do that. But, but now they're being told that they can have it all. Uh, there's a tweet that you, that you made recently that I disagreed with. I, you may have retweeted it. I don't know if it was your words, but you said that mom and dad did, you said that mom and dad did the best they know how, given their upbringing and tools they had. Nobody brings children into the world to hurt them on purpose. Their mistakes are your opportunity to never repeat. I agree yeah. with the latter. I love the latter. Because the best way to handle the mistakes of your parents is to ensure that you don't make those same mistakes. However, when I hear a parent say they did the best they knew how, it falls in this, under this line of thinking of love me how I am. There are ways that you can improve yourself to become a better parent. And I know that you've engaged in them. You've raised six kids and, and there are great parents out there. I have friends who read books and seek the wise counsel of their elders but there are others who think that parenting is just something you have or you don't, and they do it according to the whims of their emotions. And unfortunately, the, the kids are a victim of that, if they even have two parents in the home, alluding to what I said earlier. So I know that's a lot, but just some thoughts, fodder for discussion, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that tweet is definitely my tweet. And um, oftentimes I'll tweet about things that come up in sessions. Then, and one of the things that does come up quite a bit is our relationship with our parents. You know, and many people, especially in this generation, are convinced since it's like a we're all victim. It's the victimhood generation, so to speak. They are taught, or they believe, or they you know have been convinced that. You know, the parents are the, their parents in their childhood and the way the parents raise them oftentimes are the root of all their problems. And so overcoming that anger that we have towards our parents becomes a big issue for many people and becomes a roadblock for them to move forward in a healthy relationship from today on. So the reason why I wrote that tweet is to remind people, which is sometimes they forget, that your parents didn't bring you into this world to hurt you. You may have gotten hurt, and they may have done things wrong, but they're not evil. They didn't bring you into the world to hurt you. No parent does that. People bring children into the world because they want children, and they want to raise children, and they want to have a family. Now, I'm not talking about an accident that happened, but even in a case of an accident, at least one of the parents, the woman, wants to have the child. Otherwise, she would not have the child. So that's an important thing, important, an important uh, perspective for us to maintain. And the easiest way, in my opinion, it's never easy, but the best way to overcome our resentment towards our past wounds and our childhood wounds, which oftentimes we blame on our parents, is for us to internalize the idea that 
on some level, our parents did the best they could with the tools that they had. Doesn't mean they couldn't have done a better job. And a guy like you who always exerts the most energy, you may think for sure they could have done a better job. And that's, that's reasonable. But for whatever reason, this is how they raise their kids. And I can promise you from all my experience with parents is that they think they're doing the right thing at the time they're doing it. And yet they still did things wrong. Those areas where they did wrong become our opportunity to correct, course correct for the future. And, and that's the way we healthily perceive and experience our parents and the chain of life that started from who knows when back till today and is going to continue on with our own kids. You have a podcast episode called How to Lose Your Wife. Can you talk about what it is that a man does or doesn't do that can lead him to lose his wife? Sure, sure, absolutely. That's an easy one, <laughs> unfortunately. That podcast episode was was inspired by, again, by my client interactions where I was being inundated with female, with women who constantly were telling me and crying to me over the phone or in our video calls that they just can't make him happy. And it just became this theme for, I don't know, maybe a couple months. And I realized to myself that so much of what a woman lives for is to bring pleasure to her husband and to her family and to feel respected and honored, honored is a better word, for what she does give. And when a man in, in, in encourages a woman or a man puts down a woman, when a man um, insinuates, even in the slightest way, that she's not doing a great job and she's not making him happy, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's a slow bleeding of trust, of love, of affection. I can't tell you how many women I've spoken to that underneath all their complaints, forget about him not having a six pack and forget about him not making a lot of money and forget about him not watching the kids or doing the dishes, that underneath everything, he she just can't get him to be happy with her. And she's internally devastated. And when we do that consistently over a long period of time, she's gone. And there's nothing you can do to get her back. Because you have... Literally gone? We'll leave the relationship? Or maybe? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. She's, because she's 70% are initiated... 70% of divorces are initiated by women, correct? Exactly. Exactly what I'm trying to say. You're, you're, you're exactly saying what I'm trying to say. That so many of these initiations, there's this, there's this um, fallacy in the manosphere that, oh, she's monkey branching, or oh, she's looking at some other guy, or she wants that fancier car, or some guy's taller than him, or whatever. Nonsense. When you speak to these women, like I do, 
that are on the verge of divorce, underneath everything is a feeling that no matter what she does, he doesn't love her. He, he doesn't want her. She can't make him happy. He doesn't compliment her. He doesn't see all the good that she does. There's nothing she can do to get his love, affection, attention, admiration, connection, ear, heart, sometimes body. And she's just beside herself with misery. So, you know, yes, we can always try, like, it's always a great idea to work out at the gym, and it's always a great idea to make more money, and it's always a great idea to be, to be more present for the kids, and it's always a great idea to surprise her and take her out on dates, and it's always a great idea to have spontaneous, delicious sex. Absolutely, those things are important. But it, the number one, in my opinion, the number one uh, change a man can make is to make her feel that she's loved, she's desired, she's important, she's honored, and that she is making you really, really happy. Is it fair to say that women respond to praise, whereas men respond to challenge, which is why drill sergeants aren't heaping you with compliments? (laughs) Is that a fair assessment? Excellent. I love that. And I'm going to use that. Okay, so there's so much value in a conversation like this because it should be very obvious to you and listeners that you're coming from a place of having been married 30 years and having six kids and probably dealt with so many different life experiences such as a sick child, dead bedrooms, all these different things that I haven't experienced as a young person that's only been married for a little over two years and don't have kids yet. So that should be obvious. Where people see where I'm wrong, it's, it's glaringly obvious for me and listeners like me to see where you're wrong. And the example you just gave about what women tell you in their therapy sessions, you're not able to call bullshit. That's not your job. Your job is to listen. However, I would bet a lot of money that you're being lied to a lot more than you know, (laughs) because I've been in several relationships and had several friends who were left or cheated on, or let's just say the woman ended the relationship. In 100% of those times, the women had moved on in less than a few weeks. So there was another man, and I don't think that they're going to express that to you. So you made the comment about them swinging to another branch. A woman's never going to expressly state to her therapist, well, I mean, I'm not, well, it does happen, I'm sure. But I'm saying it's rare that they're going to let you know that they have this roster of men that they have kept in their hindbrain to where if the man ever... (laughs) steps over the boundary that she she's set in her mind that she won't swing onto that other branch without telling her therapist that that's what's going on. That may be true, even though I've never seen that. Um, but, but I'm going to ask you, I'm going to point out that it's a question of the chicken or the egg. A woman doesn't get married so that she can swing to another branch. 
she gets married to live happily every ever after. She's she, she's not getting she's she doesn't have this desire to go somewhere else. She has a desire to commit. And why do you think women are so into commitment? Why are they pushing for marriage? They want happily ever after. That's what they want. They want the feeling of safety and security with the highest value male they can possibly secure. The same way a man gets married with the idea of committing, he can't turn it off the fact that he's attracted to a variety of women the same way that a woman, if she's starting to have problems in her marriage, will not keep a roster that maybe she is not aware of. But I'm telling you from my experience, and this is this is not a, do- a sample of a dozen. This is a much larger sample that women will move on faster than you can change your mailing address. I'm, I'm telling you, and, well, and it wouldn't happen if they didn't have somebody on the roster already. And in 100% of cases, she will have met that man prior to <laughs> leaving her husband. And that's and a safety and security thing, too. Yeah. And I'm not disagreeing with that. The question the, where I step in is, why does she want to leave her husband? That's where I step in. That's what I'm referring to. I'm not talking about, you know, survival strategies and how she's going to make it to the next step and who she's going to pick and whether she's going to cheat or whether she's going to have the honor or the respect for her the marriage to go through the divorce process first and then find another mate. That, that I, I, I'm not commenting on. Why is she looking for somebody else? Why is she creating this roster in her head in the first place? Where is she, she going? She can't help it. The same yeah. way a man can't turn it off if he's looking at a woman who's displaying cleavage at the park. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not going to, we can agree to disagree. You know? <laughs> By the way, do you know why a man looks directly at a woman's cleavage? You tell me. Well, we don't have the same peripheral vision that women do. Uh-huh. I believe it stems from our hunter-gatherer days where we can see for a long distance, but we can't really see what's around us. Whereas a woman can see pretty much 180 degrees. You can <laughs> yeah. test this with your wife or daughter. Just oh, put up already. a couple of fingers all the way to the side of her eye yeah. and she can tell you how many you've got held up. A man cannot do this. Right. Well, so women want to know as, women yeah. want to know why you're staring directly down at, <laughs> at her cleavage. Well, that's the only way you can see it. You have to move your head. <laughs> women don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying with the hypergamy and stuff like that. And, I, and I'm not denying that that women's imperative is to find the highest quality man. But what I am, what I am taking issue with is that if uh, the, the, a woman ha- naturally has no desire to move on from a, a loving, connecting relationship, and the, the way to get her to move on is to make her feel like she can't make you happy. You do that. And she's going to start building that roster and she's going to start, or if they're already there, according to you, she's going to start speed dialing them. That's the way to <laughs> get just, her to get out the door. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying it's automatic. The roster is created automatically. Uh-huh. It's not a conscious linear thing. The same yeah. way a man naturally seeks variety. He is mm-hmm. not going to leave the marriage to seek variety. He has to control himself the same way she does. Okay. You want to do some fun questions? Sure. Go for it. Social media, net positive or net negative for society? Uh, Net positive. 
if you could give your 35-year-old self one sentence of advice to be a better husband, what would it be? Listen more, pressure less. Good one. Same question, but advice for being a better father. More time, less lecture. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Tomorrow, with the state of the economy as it is right now, (laughs) uh, 30% stock market, 30% real estate, 30% gold. Gold. Interesting. You got 10% left. Oh, uh, 10% cash. What percentage chance do you think Donald Trump has of re-election? 85 to 90%. Overrated or underrated? Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, Underrated. If you could live in Tel Aviv or the newer part of Jerusalem, which would it be? Jerusalem. That's my city of gold. Governor Cuomo, overrated or underrated? Very overrated. (laughs) (laughs) What about comedian Louis C.K. as a comedian? Very funny guy. <laughs> Over uh, underrated then? Oh, um, I think he's rated about accurate. Steve Harvey. He's uh, he's underrated. He's very funny. And the on the on that talk show, uh, the game show that he was on, he's hysterical. And do you like Dave Chappelle? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, he's he's underrated. He okay. he deserves to be selling out those big stadiums like. Uh, Chris Rock and uh, who's the other one? Kevin Hart and stuff like that. He deserves all that. Agree. Okay, last fun question. Who do you think Joe Biden will choose as his running mate? Maybe Kamala Harris? Maybe so. Have you seen her lately as of the last television appearance? I have not, no. She has completely changed her appearance to make herself more appealing. And usually when people do that, they hurt themselves more than help. Uh But you should check it out once we get off this recording. Yeah, it's incredible. (laughs) David, it's conversations like this that make me really appreciate starting a podcast. I really enjoyed it. Me too. I really appreciate the opportunity, brother. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Where can we find you online and the Impassioned Marriage podcast and your other work? Yeah, yeah. So um, the easiest way to find me is just David Feldman, D-O-V-I-D-F-E-L-D-M-A-N dot com. That's my website. And then um, if you want a lot of fun and action and some good conversations, you can visit me on Twitter. It's the same. It's really easy. No one took David Feldman, so I got it on everywhere. I have it on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, YouTube. I don't, much, I don't really have many videos on YouTube, really nothing. But um, yeah, come visit me on Twitter. It's the best place. He's a great tweeter. I can vouch for that. <laughs> He's got a large following too. Friends, thank you for listening. I will never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. If you enjoyed this episode or know someone who would benefit from hearing Dave David's great insight, please copy the link and share it with a friend. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 